0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Hi everyone, it's me, Kind, and welcome to Think Queen. On today's episode, we're talking all about the good and the bad of the internet. I'm someone who you might call a child of the internet, I've been on social media ever since I was 12 years old. I've been posting videos since I was 15, and the first person I ever came out to was a stranger on Tumblr, believe it or not. Social media is also my full-time job, and I even met my husband through social media. So I guess I'm what some might call chronically online. In fact, I'm even known as online-kind, which I chose that username back when it was still trendy for YouTubers to have screen names that weren't just first name, last name, like Gigi Gorgeous, Graveyard Girl, Patrick Star, Cookie Monster. This was back in the day when people used to say it like wasn't safe to put your real name out there on the internet because of, you know, stranger danger. But to me, online kind was also a tongue in cheek way of saying that this was my online persona, which is different from how I am in person. I'm funnier, I'm smarter, I'm more gay online. I just found that the internet was where I found my people and where I was able to escape from my real life. But so much has changed since then and I feel like the internet has really taken a lot of control over our lives now. And there's so much talk about algorithms and privacy, cybersecurity, hacking, AI, so many new technologies out there. And some people think this is gonna be the next big thing, it's gonna change the world and others say, it'll turn everything dystopian. So to help us unpack all of that, we've got Dr. Gabriella Coleman on the podcast. She previously held the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill and is currently a full professor in the Department of Anthropology at Harvard and a faculty associate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Her scholarship covers the politics, cultures, and ethics of hacking. She's the author of two books on computer hackers and host of the BBC4 radio series, the hackers. Hi, Gabriella! Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here today.
2: Your background is very fascinating. So before we dig in, I'd love to hear more about how you got into the world of the internet and hacking, especially since you're an anthropologist, which I didn't know that anthropologists studied the internet?
3: You know, now they do, although it's still not as common as it is with other fields like law and media. And certainly when I got interested in computer hacking back in 2000, it was completely heretical for an anthropologist to do that sort of work. Mm. And I was in grad school, you know, being trained in medical anthropology and I was exposed to this world of free and open source software hacking. And these hackers are kind of like real nerdy, nice people who believe that the kind of underlying directions of software should be free and liberated. And they they invented new licenses to challenge copyrights and patents. And I just found it really fascinating that a bunch of, you know, nerdy engineers who made technology were remaking the law. And yes. that was a sort of portal into... The wonderful world of computer hacking, which is really diverse and spans from sort of open source to hacktivism to cybercrime. And then adjacently, I started to also have to understand and study different aspects of the internet as well.
2: I feel like when I think about hacking, I think of like Instagram accounts being hacked, spam links, people's identities being stolen, money being sent to like an unknown user across the world. Um, So I feel like it's probably fair to say lots of people don't have a positive association with hackers. You've done a lot of research though on uh, a particular group of hackers called Anonymous who call themselves hacktivists. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure,
3: so Anonymous is probably one of the more famous hacktivist collectives that really kind of became publicly prominent in 2010, 11, 12. And Anonymous, as the name suggests, is composed of anonymous people, some of whom are not hackers, but they became most famous for their hacking. And they kind of congregated in chat rooms and launched various operations to fight kind of dictatorial regimes, to support Occupy, to expose rape culture. And again, Mm -hmm. sometimes their interventions weren't based on hacking. But nevertheless, they also started to really engage in a tactic which I call the hack and leak, where they targeted maybe like a sleazy security firm and stole their emails and then published them online. And then journalists would dig into the emails and report on sort of the shady shenanigans of the security company. And they really just took this tactic that wasn't very common and really put it on the map and helped popularize it and stabilize it anonymous was also quite famous for their kind of icon so they would often It's the
2: one with the mask, right?
3: Exactly, the guy fox mask. Yes. And so when they would release a video to launch an operation it would often be a masked individual you know making some sort of dramatic statement or you know calling on people to participate Eventually, some people got arrested and we got to know who some of the people were behind the mask. Mm. And in their wake, um, there's different hacktivist groups that exist today, like Phineas Fisher and Guayacama, who continue that work of targeting the Mexican military, mining companies, security firms, and doing this work of hacking and leaking in the public interest.
2: You wrote this essay, Reconsidering Anonymity in the Age of Narcissism, and you talk about this dichotomy between anonymity and transparency, because people usually associate anonymous profiles with trolls and bots, whereas on the other hand, somebody who's honest about what their name is and who they are, where they work, we have this idea that because they're being transparent that they have to be held accountable for what they say online. But in the essay, you seem to have a different perspective on this. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
3: You know, one of the things that I loved about anonymous was They had this very strong ethic Mm. for anonymity, and obviously it did protect those who were breaking the law, but it also was an ethic where they really believed in the collective and really cut down fame-seeking behaviors. And precisely because they were anonymous, however, there were some groups of people who tended not to trust them because mm-hmm. as you sort of noted anonymity is often associated with criminality or deception and that's certainly the case in so far as people will use anonymity to lie and deceive right but we know with politicians like Trump for example and others they will also do the same deceive and lie with you know mm-hmm. with being very public right so it's a kind of false dichotomy and and historically anonymity has been used by all sorts of groups who are oppressed and marginalized to both protect themselves and also tell the truth and protect themselves from the consequences of that truth telling. Right. So anonymous again, was I think one of these groups that relied on anonymity and um, the record shows for the most part, they told the truth, they exposed wrongdoing, and they embraced this ethic also on the basis of creating a kind of collective Based on equality,
2: do you think that people are maybe too scared then of like hackers and cyber crimes, where they should be more scared of like governments and corporations? Or do you think that people don't take cyber crimes seriously enough, given how how powerful they could be?
3: Right, that's a great question. I mean, I think both governments and corporations get away with way too much you know, and and journalists will often expose them, which is wonderful, but we do often need whistleblowers and hacktivists also to shine a light and uh, retrieve information that they don't want out in the world. But, you know, cybercrime is also a problem, right? And cybersecurity, and there are a lot of threats online, and these have to be taken very, very seriously, and they're of very different kinds as well. I mean, they range from very sophisticated... Criminal groups operating out of Eastern Europe and Russia, to um, you know individuals who target women and other kind of marginalized uh, individuals out of revenge and create non-consensual sexual deep fakes. So, deep fake pornography—that's a huge security threat, right? And actually, there's a group of hackers who are in the infosec security world mm-hmm. who are working towards better security
1: and fighting mm-hmm.
3: kind of cybercrime and other security threats as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, on the topic of cybersecurity, I feel like we used to be way more like cautious and concerned about it like a decade ago. Because I remember when I was first starting to get on the internet, my dad was very wary of it all. He he didn't trust like online shopping. He was so suspicious of like putting credit card details online. Um, and now it feels like we're all like so trusting of the internet. And especially I feel like this younger generation, there's kind of like this zero Fs given attitude where we know the government already knows everything about us. My phone is tracking me everywhere I go. It's listening to every word I say. I know that there's an FBI agent probably watching me through my webcam, and I'm at peace with that. All he sees is me watching Netflix. I feel like that's sort of the attitude that a lot of, especially young people, have taken, that this is just something to accept about living life in the 21st century. But what do you think? Do you think that we're too trusting on the Internet?
3: I mean, the Internet is this giant machine that collects all our data, right? Mm -hmm. And both corporations and governments amply make use of it for surveillance, for tracking in ways that, you know, are pretty nefarious or potentially nefarious. And I think you're right that there is a way in which people who are online today, first of all, like you feel like you don't have a choice. You kind of have Mm -hmm. to be online, right? It's very hard not to be online. But Mm -hmm. there is a kind of nihilism that we can't do much about it and resignation, Mm -hmm. except among, I think, a small quarter of people who are kind of geeks and activists who are sort of building the tools that provide some privacy, such as Signal or Tor, and then others who are raising the alarm about some of the data harms that can come from companies tracking, packaging, and selling this data in order to eventually, you know, institute better regulation because that still has to happen. I mean, too many companies get away with Mm -hmm. a lot. And it's only through kind of, you know, continuing to sound the alarm that maybe eventually people will do something about it. But I think you're right. Generally, a lot of people kind of know about the harms, but they're sort of like a shrug, what can we do about it? Right?
2: Do you think that there's like more that people should be doing to protect their privacy that they don't know that they could be doing?
3: Yeah, I think that there is. So, for example, there have been some cases around women who have sought abortion care in places where it's illegal and the courts have used their texts, right?
2: hmm I've heard about this.
3: Exactly. So what can you do? Like, you don't want to stop texting, right? And so when you text without an encrypted program like Signal... A third party has access to those texts. So it's better to use something like Signal, which is encrypted and encourage your network to use them. Now, if someone takes your phone while you have Signal, they could still see your texts. But once you delete those texts from your phone, there's no third party holding them, right? So that's helpful. If you're doing a search for something that is sensitive, doing search around health or seeking abortions, I'm just using that just because we know that so much has changed legally around that in the United States. Mm -hmm. Use a browser that doesn't track you in your web searches, right? So Brave, Tor, there's plugins for Firefox for privacy mode, right? So that's another thing that I think you can do. I think something that people aren't aware of is that apps also track a lot of what you do, including your location Mm-hmm. And that there's third parties who will take that information and sell it as well to other parties. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the advice there is to kind of look up the app and see what their policies are. And if it's data that you don't want shared, then maybe don't use the app. So those are a few things that you can do.
2: Yeah, I've heard people say that if you're on a website and everything's free and you're not paying for a product, it's because you are the product and your your data. That's right. But some right. people have suggested that the alternative would be instead of these websites like Twitter, Meta, Google, instead of them selling our data, maybe they should switch to like a subscription-based model so they could make money another way.
3: Certainly, there was this idea, I think, early on in the internet that everything would be free and cheap and wonderful. But Mm -hmm. actually, to run these services costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We see with, with Twitter and Elon Musk, who bought Twitter... Um, He fired a bunch of people and there's been a lot of issues with maintenance and upkeep. And Mm -hmm. if it's free, then exactly your data is the product. And so other models are subscription-based models or federated servers that are decentralized where small people are kind of running services. And so the kind of labor load and technical load is spread out. It's difficult once you have these systems in place to kind of topple them down. But but moments like this where there's so much unsatisfaction, for example, with Twitter, Mm
1: -hmm. are good
3: moments to think about alternatives. And a lot of people have gone to Mastodon, which is a free and open source software alternative that is based on this decentralized model.
2: We're going to get right back into it in just a moment.
4: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
2: Welcome back to the podcast. I feel like in the past few years, there's been so much discourse around misinformation, fake news, free speech, and at the center of all that recently has been Elon Musk buying Twitter out of this concern that there was too much censorship, not enough free speech. What do you make of all that? Do you think that Twitter is like a public square where everyone deserves to be heard?
3: I think the power of Twitter is that there are a lot of people paying attention, and... There have been studies that have shown that the Me Too movement, for example, which was really exposing all this kind of abuse, was facilitated by Twitter. The long COVID community, for example, is very present on Twitter. So I think it is powerful as a kind of very public Mm. shared space. And I just want to note that. That's why I do think it's important. Does that mean that there should be no moderation of content and that everyone should be given free reign? I don't think so. There are moments where it does make sense to take down accounts and content, but I do think it's a tricky issue. You know, I -hmm. don't always think that the line is very clear, right? But that it needs to be done. But sometimes I do think that there can be some legitimate um, debate over a new medical procedure where, you know, there isn't yet consensus and it's really important Mm -hmm. to have dissenting voices. Mm-hmm. And I also think that sometimes if you censor some people who are spreading disinformation, they become like fortified in certain ways.
2: Yeah, they start to feel like martyrs. Exactly.
3: Right. So there's a yeah, there's a kind of fine line. Now, I think Elon Musk has been extremely hypocritical, though. So he's allowed all mm-hmm. sorts of people back,
2: oh, totally. but he's
3: also banned all sorts of people. Like Chad Loder, who it was this account that really unveiled a lot of people in the far right who were going after kind of Mm anti-fascists. He's been blocked and he's not allowed in. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I believe, again, that it does make sense to have some degree of content moderation. I don't think it's an easy thing to do. And Elon Musk, who claims to be this free speech maximalist, in practice is not either.
2: Yeah, I, I would I would probably agree with that. I'll switch gears a little bit. I I guess this is a little bit unrelated, um, but but maybe not. I, I you'll tell me what is your take on AI and technology like ChatGPT and AI generated art? Where do you see it intersecting with like cybersecurity in the future?
3: Sure. Um, maybe I'll talk about ChatGPT and then also talk a little bit about some deep fake technologies that are also Mm AI-enabled and kind of maybe juxtapose them a little bit. But first, for those people that may not know, GPT-CHAT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. It's caused a big splash and sensation. And basically, it's a piece of technology that entirely relies on AI and language learning models where a user feeds... The model would like a sentence, a query, a command, and then the transformer part of the technology takes that and provides a coherent answer. And the model is trained on publicly available data sets and it's not actually connected to the internet. Um, GPT can kind of process and create any type of text, including articles and stories and music and code and guitar tabs and poetry. I think that's why it's caused such a big sensation because the answers that it gives are very human-like.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. I'm amazed have by it. Have you
3: used it at all?
2: I have. I, I tried it just the other day. I was I finally gave in. To, I, I heard so many people talking about it. I was like shocked. It's it's like typing something into Google. But like the answer is so human. It's like somebody has like done all the research and they've presented it to you. And it's like, it takes all of like two seconds.
3: Exactly. So it's really at some level, seemingly pretty impressive. And also going back to the cybercrime thing, for example, an organization called Checkpoint did some research and it was just published in early January that showed that the cyber criminal community is already starting to use chat GPT to write code for criminal purposes. Wow. Yeah. And so it's out there. It's, you know, obviously there's also a big fear as to whether students will be using it to write essays. So, you know, there's been kind of a lot of discussion around whether it's kind of positive or negative, whether it works well. And I think that there are a lot of different dimensions and, you know, it is very impressive that Coders, for example, are using the software to kind of help with their coding. And, for Mm -hmm. example, uh, Google employees were just warned to stop using it (laughs) because they're just afraid that some of their kind of trade secrets, technological trade secrets, are going to be part of the data set.
2: Oh, Google is shook.
3: Exactly. (laughs) But you know what's interesting about it when it comes to, I think, analysis. Like, if you ask it a question about The History of Hacking, which I've done
1: Mm -hmm. on my own
3: research, the answers are extremely shallow and very surface level Mm. and often actually wrong as well. And so I think, you know, students in particular have to be really, really careful in so far as the answer seems legit and there's some truth to the answer, but often the most shallow manner
2: I feel like if this is like just the beginning of it in 10 years from now, it would be like so different. All of the little like flaws, I feel like people can tweak those. I just feel like it's so impressive. I can't wait to see like where it goes. But what do you think are some of the dangers then of artificial intelligence?
3: Well, artificial intelligence is being used, for example, in courtrooms to determine sentencing for individuals. And, you know, a lot of very smart computer scientists and legal researchers have audited the data that's being used in the sentencing, and it's extremely biased. And Mm -hmm. so in many respects, especially if you're a person of color, there is a kind of expectation already of a certain type of behavior, and you're going to get like a stiffer sentencing because the AI system already is predetermined to do that. Another area too that AI is being used is for hiring. And my understanding is that it's trained to identify certain personality traits as well. And that often their assumptions are faulty. And so all sorts of people aren't being considered for jobs based on sort of bad data and bad AI models. So those are two areas that a lot of legal scholars in specific sort of really raise the alarm and feel like there should be a lot more scrutiny and regulation. I think another area, too, is with deep fakes, where you have AI enabled software and apps. That can, for example, take a picture where there's a person that has clothing and then the clothing is removed and, you know, a fake but very, very, very realistic image is replaced with it, often very sexually violent, released out to the world, right? And so AI has, um, you know, really helped enable the proliferation of sort of deep fakes on the internet which are overwhelmingly used to target women as revenge. So there is a company, a kind of cybersecurity company called DeepTrace that did a study in 2019 of deepfake videos. And so they basically found almost 15,000 deepfake videos. A small portion were of like politicians. Their speech was edited to say something false, but 96% percent of those 15,000 videos were targeting women, often with sort of pornographic content.
2: Wow. 96%. I know. It's oh almost, my God. This
3: was in 2019. Right. Um, and so the great majority of deep fake technology currently is being used for gender-based violence. Right. And it's not something that, you know, I wish that would get a little bit more attention than chat GPT, mm. although chat GPT should get attention. It is very interesting technology, but here's this other technology that also is somewhat based on AI that is having quite a bit of consequence. And so basically, you know, we have to kind of band together and denounce this as we both create legal fortifications and then as communities do things like ban apps or forums where this activity is being sort of encouraged, right?
2: It's like we're all children and we need to be like banned from doing it until we learn our lesson and learn how to be responsible, which is, I find it ironic because I feel like we used to think, like science fiction movies used to think like robots would take over and they'd like start getting revenge. But it turned out that like... It's us. That's the problem. It's human fault. It's biased samples. It's irresponsible users using it for malicious reasons. Like at the bottom of all of this, like scary technology, it's not really the technology's fault, is it? It's us that we're not ready for it.
3: I love your point that children learn behaviors and norms. Um, I do think that sometimes like, you know, why create Mm -hmm. certain technologies that are just kind of from the go may be problematic. Mm-hmm. And again, I think AI can be incredibly useful. So that as a field isn't a problem, but AI to kind of pick out people's personalities, I mean, it just mm-hmm. seems like pseudoscience to me. And I think it's okay to sort of be critical of the very idea that you should create technologies for that purpose.
2: Well, I, I have one more question for you. Which is, do you think that we as a society have become too addicted to our screens and that we just need to go out and touch grass some more?
3: I do. You know, I I think that there's Mm. a lot of great things about the online world, you know, and your opening kind of showed that and it's a real lifeline for a lot of people still. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good that can come from being online. We've talked about a lot of the like terrible things that can happen online from the kind of creation of deep fakes to just different forms of cybercrime. But some of these technologies were explicitly kind of created to be addictive. And so, for example, the person who invented the like button on Facebook at a certain Mm -hmm. point felt very, very guilty that he helped design this one little technology that kind of keeps you coming back. And Mm -hmm. so those design principles are at work on Twitter and Facebook, and a lot of young people feel like, you know, they can't get offline.
2: We don't even think of it as addiction, really. We think of it as just user retention. Right. Addiction to us is like caffeine, it's drugs, stuff that you put in your body, but you're right, it isn't a sort of addiction.
3: Exactly. But the kind of danger and desire is always there. And again, some of these technologies were designed to encourage that sort of like addictive behavior as well.
2: Oh, for sure. Um, well, I'm afraid we're running out of time. But before you go, I want to play this little game of rapid fire questions. I'm just going to pull okay. out of my hat. Great. <laughs> okay, question number one, if you could be an animal, what animal would you be?
3: A p- capybara.
2: Oh, a capybara. Yeah, they're
3: just the cutest rodent in the world. I identify as being like a little rodent, <laughs> but they're just like cute and snuggly and they chill and so a capybara.
2: All right. Um, who is your favorite Kardashian?
3: Um, Well, I don't think I have one, but there is a Twitter. Yeah, I
2: get the feeling you're not keeping up with the Kardashians.
3: No, but I do really <laughs> like a Twitter account that melds quotes, From one of the Kardashians in Schopenhauer.
2: Yes, I've seen. That's Kim Kardashian. (laughs) Yeah,
3: exactly. Those are brilliant. And that's what I love about Twitter. There's a lot of like really clever, clever, you know, people out there.
2: Yeah. I like
3: the hat thing.
2: Right? Okay. This
3: is like the opposite of AI, you know, (laughs) because it's like random. Whereas AI is all about like trying to predict.
2: Yes, this is artificial silliness. Super solid. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> salad salad, because I'm also really, really good at making salads. That's one of my secret skills in life.:
2: Fair enough, I love a fruit salad
3: with with what fruits?
2: Well, in the Philippines, we do this like it like all comes out of cans and they do like condensed milk and evaporated milk with like cherries, pineapples, apples. they even put a little bit of cream cheese in it. You should try
3: it. That sounds amazing. Anything with um, condensed milk, like you can't go wrong. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, thank you so much for being here. I know we've only just scratched the surface of all of this, but for everybody who's interested in learning more, where can they find more of your work?
3: So if you Google my name, Gabriella Coleman, my website will come up, my personal, my academic, my Twitter. That's where you can find me.
2: Perfect. Thank you so much for being on Think Queen.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye.
2: Bye. Think Queen is produced by Entertainment One. Director of Programming at E1's podcast network, Sasha Tong. Producer, Maddie Hanukkah and Sasha Tong. Associate producers, Chris Chu. Edited and mixed by Maddie Hanukkah. For more episodes, subscribe to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share it with your friends and make sure to leave a rating and review. Subscribe now to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.